Hey everybody, and welcome back to They Didn't Teach Me This in School, a podcast about poverty, culture, and America. I'm so glad that you're back for our fourth episode. Today, we're going to be talking about environmental justice in America and what the repercussions are for groups that don't have environmental justice. I hope that this episode teaches you something. As always, links to all of today's sources can be found on the blog at peytonprooksh.wixsite.com podcast. Let's get into it. To start this episode, we're going to take it back to U.S. history class. If you're like me, you probably know of the Doctrine of Discovery and Manifest Destiny, but you can't quite remember what they are. Let's start with the Doctrine of Discovery. During the 15th century, Papal Bulls, edicts issued by the Pope, gave Christian explorers the right to claim lands that they, quote-unquote, discovered. These papal bills said that any land not inhabited by Christians was available to be discovered, claimed, and exploited. If the non-Christian inhabitants could be converted, they might be spared. If not, they would be enslaved or killed. The idea was to promote Christian domination and superiority. In an 1823 Supreme Court case, the Doctrine of Discovery became part of U.S. federal law and was used to steal land from Native peoples. And that brings us to this episode's court case. Today's court case is called Johnson and Graham's Lessee v. McIntosh. This is one of the most famous cases of the Marshall Court and is taught in many first-year law school courses. Here's what happened. In 1775, a man named Thomas Johnson and other British citizens purchased land in Virginia from members of the Piankasha Indian tribe under a proclamation by the King of England. When he died, Thomas Johnson left this land to his heirs. In 1818, William McIntosh purchased from Congress 11,000 acres of the land originally purchased by Johnson. Johnson's heirs sued McIntosh to recover the land. Ruling that the Piankasha tribe did not have the right to convey the land, the district court held that Johnson's initial purchase and the chain of titles stemming from it were invalid. Basically, they ruled that Johnson's heirs had no right to the land now owned by McIntosh. So this raises a question. Can a Native American tribe convey land to individuals? In a unanimous decision, the court said no. They established that the federal government had the sole right of negotiation with the Native American nations. The indigenous peoples themselves did not have the right to sell their own property to individuals. McIntosh's claim, which came from Congress, was superior to Johnson's claim, which was derived from the non-existent right of Native Americans to sell their land. Essentially, the Doctrine of Discovery established a spiritual, political, and legal justification for colonization and seizure of land not inhabited by Christians. Later, the Doctrine of Discovery was the inspiration in the 1800s for the Monroe Doctrine, which declared U.S. dominance over the Western Hemisphere, and Manifest Destiny. Manifest Destiny was the idea that white Americans were divinely ordained, chosen by God, to settle the entire North American continent. This is where the idea of from sea to shining sea comes from. This ideology inspired a wide variety of measures that were designed to remove and, in some cases, decimate the Native population. Manifest Destiny includes a belief in the inherent superiority of white Americans. It justified the extreme measures used to clear the Native population from the land, such as forced removal and violent extermination. As new territories were added to the United States, the North and South fought over whether the new states admitted to the Union were to be free states or slave states. In the end, Manifest Destiny inflamed tensions over slavery and ultimately led to the Civil War. And this is where the ideas of the Doctrine of Discovery and Manifest Destiny quickly devolve into settler colonialism. 
A quick refresher from our first episode, settler colonialism is an ongoing system of power that perpetrates the genocide and repression of indigenous peoples and cultures. And the goal of it is the removal and erasure of indigenous peoples in order to take the land for use by settlers in perpetuity. You can see where the doctrine of discovery and manifest destiny led to settler colonialism in the United States. Similarly, the lands that were stolen back in the 1500s are still home to white Americans today, so the consequences are still affecting native populations some 500 years later. In the introduction of her book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz makes the argument that it's a short leap from settler colonialism to genocide. She goes on to say that the United States is a nation founded on the idea of white supremacy, the widespread practice of African slavery, and a policy of genocide and land theft. These are things that happened decades ago, but we live with the consequences today. We cannot separate the founding of our nation, the lives of our ancestors, or the United States of the present without reckoning with this truth. Similarly, Dunbar-Ortiz calls into question Christopher Columbus, a man who is deeply embedded in our national culture, think the District of Columbia, but never even set foot in what is now United States territory. America has been framed as a quote-unquote nation of immigrants, which conceals the brutal history of colonization and all but forgets the Native American populations who were here long before European explorers ever even arrived in the Western Hemisphere. And it's not like these Native American populations were rudimentary groups who lacked the skills to keep themselves alive and thriving. Irrigation systems for corn were in place at least 2,000 years before Europeans even knew the Americas existed. Indigenous people prevented disease through medicine and bathing. They had strong forms of government and continued to self-govern as nations within a nation even today. Once the United States had been settled by white people and formally turned in the country we know today, Native Americans were already erased from our history. After the Civil Rights Movement, the United States adopted the idea of multiculturalism, a revised history that seeks to include indigenous peoples within a progress-oriented narrative. It does not address treaties, sovereignty, or indigenous lands. And this brings me to a really great resource called native-land.ca. This is a really eye-opening website where you can type in your current address and learn what tribe's land you're on. I'm sitting in my apartment in Washington, D.C. right now, and I'm on land that belongs to two different tribes, and I'm really sorry if I mispronounce these, but I'm doing my very best, um, the Nakoshtonk and the Piscataway. This source is really enlightening because it turns an abstract idea that all of the lands in the United States have been stolen from Native Americans and turns it into a concrete one by giving you the names and information of specific people who lost their land in your area. If you're interested in learning more about the Native Americans in your area or the land that you live on, I'd really highly recommend checking out this website. Again, it's native-land.ca and it'll be linked on the blog as well. As I talked about last week, people of color in America don't have the same access to healthcare that white people do. A lot of the reason has to do with where they live, as well as the environment in which they live. In the last episode, I briefly mentioned that the Navajo Nation is a food desert. A food desert is a geographic area where residents access to affordable, healthy food options, especially fresh fruits and vegetables, is restricted or non-existent due to the absence of grocery stores with inconvenient traveling distance. Food deserts are mostly found in low-income areas, and studies have found that wealthy districts have three times as many supermarkets as poor ones do. Similarly, the disparity in price between healthy and unhealthy foods is even greater in food deserts, making healthy options inaccessible for those living in these areas. As we mentioned last week, this has left the Navajo population vulnerable to COVID-19, but it also exposes them to a range of other long-term preventable health issues. 
For example, one in five Navajo adults has diabetes, the third highest rate in the world, and half of Navajo children are unhealthily overweight. In many food deserts, it's recommended that citizens grow some of their own fruits and veggies, but the climate of Navajo Nation makes that impossible. Clearly, structural changes are required to make Navajo Nation a healthier place to live with access to affordable, healthy, fresh food. Not only does where a community live affect their access to fresh, healthy food, it also affects how quickly they can access medical care and what the quality of that medical care is. According to a scholarly article entitled Rural Health, Access to Care and Services by Julie Nelson and Barbara Stover Gingrich, both of whom are registered nurses, lack of access to quality health care is a risk that you take by choosing to live in rural America. Specifically, we see this in rural residents older than 65 years old. According to the census, around 22% of the nation's elderly reside in rural areas, and rural elderly are more likely than urban elderly to have multiple chronic conditions, engage in less preventative medical treatment, and have an increased likelihood of being institutionalized due to an inability to care for themselves at home. They are also more likely to be considered low income. This lack of services and support makes it more difficult for elderly people in rural areas to maintain independence. While there are options such as home care, these are more expensive and are similarly difficult to access in the more rural parts of the country. As usual, I want to point to a 1619 project essay that ties into the ideas of today's episode. This one is called How Segregation Caused Your Traffic Jam by Kevin M. Cruz. He begins by stating that Atlanta has some of the worst traffic in the United States. However, he goes on to argue that this traffic is a direct consequence of a century-long effort to segregate the races. For much of the history of America, there has been a conscious effort to keep African Americans, quote-unquote, in their place. We see it in slavery, sharecropping, voting laws, the healthcare system, and more. Once white people no longer had to keep African Americans under watch constantly, they wanted them out of sight. As a result, they were pushed into ghettos, creating the segregation we know today. It started in a very overt way, with cities like Baltimore and Louisville creating laws that mandated residential racial segregation. While the Supreme Court ruled against these laws, the practice never really went away. Like the disenfranchisement of African Americans throughout the years, the same effect was just achieved in different ways, such as redlining and urban renewal. The intertwined history of infrastructure and racial inequality continued with the creation of the interstate highway system. When it came time to pick the path, local officials often chose routes that bulldozed the city's poorest neighborhoods, which almost always housed racial minorities. Not only were interstates used to destroy black neighborhoods, they were also used to keep black and white neighborhoods apart. In many major cities, these roads and highways serve as dividing lines between distinct black and white sections of cities like Milwaukee, St. Louis, and Atlanta. In Atlanta, the mayor deliberately chose a winding path for I-20 to serve as, quote, the boundary between the white and Negro communities, unquote. He argued that segregating people of color would keep downtown Atlanta a desirable place for middle-class whites, but it ultimately sped the process of white people leaving Atlanta. Then, as white people left the city and the suburbs grew, traffic became worse on the highways because of their awkward placement. Mass transit, which was put in place as a solution to the traffic problem, was met with opposition largely because of racial reasons. This opposition to MARTA, the Metropolitan Atlanta Rapid Transit Authority, has never gone away. And as Cruz says at the end of his essay, Atlanta's traffic is at a standstill because its attitude about transit is at a standstill too. The city is still stalled in the past. And this isn't an issue that's unique to Atlanta. 
Another really famous example is in New York City. The issues with New York's public transit, which can still be seen today, can be traced back to just one man, Robert Moses. The whole interesting story is laid out in an article by Emily Nonko, which of course is linked on the blog. But here's the condensed version. Robert Moses was known as the great master builder of 20th century New York and helped to create the city's highway system as well as many of its parks, beaches, pools, and bridges. However, he had no interest in public transit. At the expense of subways and buses, he prioritized roadways and cars, leaving a detrimental impact on the transit system that still exists to this day. One story even suggests that Moses intentionally built the Long Island Parkway to have overpasses with incredibly low clearances, ensuring that buses, and therefore anyone who couldn't afford a car, wouldn't be able to use them. So not only did Moses ignore public transit, he actively and consistently undermined it. Theodore Keel, a retired labor mediator, told the New York Times that Moses, quote, was hostile to mass transit and hostile to poor New Yorkers, unquote. And at the time that Moses was doing this, the idea of urban renewal was spreading across the country, causing city planners, usually white males, to, dem to demolish and displace low-income neighborhoods to make way for highways like they did in Atlanta. According to former Secretary of Transportation Anthony Fox, the highway system displaced more than a million Americans. And you guessed it, most of them were low-income people of color. Later, Moses was in charge of building 13 expressways throughout the five New York boroughs, and the effects on the neighborhoods they were built through was intense. For example, the Cross Bronx Expressway cut off low-income and immigrant communities and tanked property values in those areas. Similarly, much like in Atlanta, Moses allegedly looked for ways to ensure that the negative effects of traffic impacted minority neighborhoods rather than higher-end neighborhoods. For example, he placed the Robert F. Kennedy Bridges exit ramp in Harlem, even though it would have made more sense to put it in the Upper East Side, so that the wealthier neighborhood of the Upper East Side stayed untouched by traffic, while Harlem became crowded with vehicles headed towards the bridge. Not only did these highways have direct negative impacts on low-income communities, they also caused public transit to be neglected, making it more difficult for these citizens to travel around the city. Nonco provides a quote from Robert Caro, about Moses's legacy on New York City's public transportation system. Quote, when Robert Moses came to power in New York in 1934, the city's mass transportation system was probably the best in the world. When he left power in 1968, it was quite possibly the worst, unquote. From the way European explorers stole land from Native Americans some five centuries ago to the way Robert Moses and other city planners intentionally planned cities to the detriment of low-income communities, it's clear that minority communities don't have environmental justice in America. This leads to a range of problems, like lack of access to food and health care. While groups, namely some Native American tribes, are making an effort to reclaim this land, environmental injustice is an issue that has been around for centuries and will likely never fully go away. That brings us to the end of today's episode. I hope that you enjoyed, and I hope that you learned something. As always, all of the sources mentioned in the episode and more are linked on the blog at peytonprooks.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's P-E-Y-T-O-N-P-R-O-K-S-C-H dot wixsite, W-I-X-S-I-T-E dot com slash podcast. I hope that you all join me again next week when we talk about America's territories. Have a great week!